It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. And if you download the app, you can listen anywhere you go. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show Giuseppe Amatulli. Giuseppe is on the show to talk about an article he authored in the conversation entitled What a Landmark Court Victory for BC First Nation Means for Indigenous Rights and Resource Development. And he is a PhD candidate in anthropology in Durham University. He's also an enthusiastic researcher, passionate about the Arctic and Indigenous peoples for whom uh, live in the region. And since, since 2012, he has been studying Indigenous-related issues while living and working in several countries, Italy, Luxembourg, Finland, Australia, United Kingdom, and Canada. It's interesting, Giuseppe, I must say, that uh, you being Italian, I'm guessing, with a name like Giuseppe. I am. uh, What drew you, if you don't mind me asking, to the interest in Indigenous peoples and rights? Um, Well, I... I got interested in uh, uh, indigenous uh, related issues when I started in Finland. Mm. Um, in 2013, 2014, I did my master in uh, human rights. And uh, um, during that academic year, I traveled to Lapland. And, you know, in Europe, we, we have just one uh, recognized indigenous um, group, the, mm. the Sami. Yes. Um, and so basically, I got interested in uh, the culture because, you know, it, it's a fascinating and, uh, uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I wanted to explore how, uh, you know, indigenous people in the, of the Arctic have been able to, um, to live, notwithstanding uh, the modern world, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and basically, I, I got into... Um, you know, um, I, I got interested in, um, in in these issues, and especially in exploitation of natural resources mm. and how you know uh, indigenous people have been able to deal with extraction and extractivism in general. Mm. Right. What have you found most interesting since you started to get into this line of interest and study? Um. I think, um, and that's probably one of the reasons why I got interested in the Canadian situation. I think when we um, when we think about extractivism and when we think about uh, natural resources, we uh, basically think about something that is necessary to um, you know to live in the modern world, right? Mm. But uh, what we might not uh, know is the fact that basically those resources are located in territories that have been used for like <laughs> thousands and thousands of years uh, by indigenous people. And basically when we when we like proceed with extract like with the extraction of these resources, we are basically going into indigenous territories. And so somehow I was like interested in understanding how uh, you know uh, the relationship has been uh, uh, developed in the last uh, decades. And I think in Canada there is a lot, like there is so much going on, right. uh, you know, and probably that, that was one of the reasons why I got interested in the Canadian situation. Right. Well, that's an interesting word, I think, you choose there, relationship. 
what the relationship, that's a very interesting word to use, from this article that you we are talking about today, uh, what a landmark court victory for BC First Nation means for Indigenous rights and resource development. Um, you actually went and spent time uh, in, in BC uh, with, with some First Nation people. Yes, I did my field work in, uh, um, in the Fort St. John area in northeastern British Columbia. And uh, I got uh, lucky and I worked with the land office of Doyle River First Nation. And, uh, uh, well, of course, I, <laughs> I basically discovered uh, a new world <laughs> in many ways, right? Right. And, uh, and to me, you know, uh, first of all, what I, uh, what I learned from my experience was that um, indigenous um, bands are basically uh, governments. Mm-hmm. And so it is important, like it is important to acknowledge that, you know, you have a government, you have a structure, you have a council, you have a chief, you have a band manager, you have a land manager, and there are people working in the land office. And so when we talk about relationship and when we talk about, you know, reconciliation, sometimes I think my, my feeling at least is that, you know, this word has been used um, in a way that uh, it has been probably uh, not well uh, explained because I think uh, indigenous people and especially nowadays with uh, like the specific expertise that a band uh, may have, with the land office, for example, they really want to uh, to to have a say and to to cooperate with the government, but you know, on on a like nation to nation level, right? And that's probably the most challenging thing for the for the government. And I think that's the reason why uh, this ruling is important, and it is important the fact that the government of British Columbia is not appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada, because in a way, you know, uh, it means that the BC government is recognized that, well, okay, uh, that's, that's a new path that we have to follow and probably we need to embrace this hmm. new path and to say that indigenous bands are government and we need to build nation-to-nation um, relationship. Mm. For people that aren't familiar with this ruling, the Yehi versus British Columbia ruling, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, um, Marvin Yehi is the uh, Blue River First Nation chief, and uh, they started this litigation in 2015, and they basically uh, started the litigation in order to um, to stop the uh, industrial development that has been authorized without uh, the consent of the band. Yes. And, uh, and that's the thing, right? When it comes to industrial development, when it comes to uh, indigenous uh, related issues, it's not that indigenous people don't want in development. They do, but they they want to be part of it and they want to have a say, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, they are very progressive and uh, sometimes they even... Uh, they even want to do something different, and the problem has been that they they haven't been able to uh, to have a proper say in decision making in a way that you know it's not just uh, like inclusion doesn't really uh, mean to to have a checklist and to ask something and to get an answer. Inclusion 
means that people and bands must have the possibility to decide which kind of future they want and how they envision the future. And I think this is the real challenge right now. And also, you know, for the government, but also for the men, because, you know, sometimes it's also challenging to, to find a way to, to uh, basically to match the needs of mm, living in, in, in a complex world, in a modern world with mm. a lot of mm. uh, needs and the, the traditional lifestyle, right? Right, right. Now, what you were talking about there in, in terms of the free, prior, and informed consent, and now in terms of that consent, and in, for, in terms of that free, prior, and informed consent, uh, as as someone that is from outside of the country and visiting and, and observing, first of all, what 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 did you discover about that relationship that you talked about earlier? Uh, initially and and you you kind of had a unique perspective because you were working with the the first nation community itself um and you were allowed to be in there so i'm sure you you heard some things um that maybe you weren't aware of yes absolutely well first of all i would like to say that uh in my opinion um the canadian legislation has been um uh, like it's been developed uh, a lot in the last uh, decade, uh, you know, since 2016, mm. when the first Trudeau government uh, fully endorsed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and then, you know, with the approval of uh, Bill 41 by the BC government. Mm. Um, I think uh, the real issue with the word consent uh, is related to the meaning of consent mm. and how you know the government in the different nations uh, understand right. consent, right? right? And uh, for example, during uh, a workshop that I um, uh, carried out with uh, the Doig River First Nation, we uh, talked and uh, we tried to understand if members um, can actually. Um, define consent in their own language, in, uh, in the Gamitza language. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, uh, I discovered that for them, well, I, I didn't discover anything, but <laughs> they told me that consent is a co something collective for them, right? So basically, yes. if someone wants to, to use uh, a piece of land or, you know, um, a piece of forest, the the nation can basically decide to say yes okay that's that's good that's all right for us right yep. and uh, and it's not something that they really conceive as uh, like um an individual right so basically someone to say well okay uh i i i give you my consent uh and so everything is all right it's more like a collective right yep. to use something and, uh, and I think this is probably the reason why, uh, you know, uh, there is still a lot of debate in Canada about the meaning of consent in the context of the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, and especially when we talk about ethics. So tell me about that, how it, how it sort of works in with your dissertation and some of the other things that you've seen and heard as you've been traveling around and, and uh, seeing uh, other Indigenous people in other parts of the world. Yeah, so basically, you know, um, my experience with the Doig River First Nation has been, um, it has been a great experience in so many ways. It has been also challenging because for me, it was the first time 
to work with a nation and so i i needed to understand uh so many things and mm. uh, to get to know mm. uh you know a new environment a new context and uh, to establish uh relationships with people right which mm -hmm. takes a lot of time um i think uh what i really um what i really wanted to uh, to understand is how um the everyday life of people can be somehow uh, improved by uh, the legislation if we are able to apply legislation according to the way in which people uh, want to live. So basically, you know, in uh, in my dissertation, um, um, in the final part of my dissertation, I have um, a couple of legal chapters, and in these chapters, I introduce the concept of living law which is basically um, a sociological slash legal anthropological concept about the way in which legislation should be shaped and framed uh, according to the way in which people uh, want to live, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is, uh, uh, this is very interesting when it comes to the exploitation of natural resources because, you know, sometimes even the legislation has been tool to uh, you know to colonize right sure. and to impose something mm -hmm. and uh, and i think if we are able to and, and this is something that you know indigenous people have been especially in canada uh, indigenous people have been doing for a long time now to, to include you know indigenous law and uh, um cultural like traditional knowledge uh, and legal knowledge from um in, from the indigenous perspective now I think what we need, what, what should be done now is to, to basically to include uh, a bit more of um, indigenous knowledge from a legal perspective into the legislation, right? And so uh, when it comes to the concept of living law, I would like to, to find a way to, to say, well, you know, we should take into account the way in which people want to live, the way in which people envision the future, in order to shape a legislation that can can work actually you know uh when it comes to uh to address uh like real uh issues in the everyday life of these people right you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And my guest here on the show with me, I have Giuseppe Amatuli, and he is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Durham University. We're talking to him about an article he authored in the conversation called What a Landmark Court Victory for BC First Nation Means for Indigenous Rights and Resource Development. And, uh, you know, Giuseppe, as you were talking, and I think about this relationship you talked about, and you, you talked about how when you go to a community or a nation of people and you're you're you, you, you said it takes a long time to get this uh this relationship uh, and the trust going there so i'm very interested in finding out how did you how did you approach these people the nations and the, and the first nations to say hey I, i'm doing something here uh, please allow me to come into your community and observe what you're doing and let me write about it because there is that inherent mistrust that is uh that is naturally there because of the history of the colonizers and so can you take me through that a little bit 
Oh, yes. Thanks for the question. I think this is a very interesting question and I'm very happy to answer. <laughs> um, so, first of all, uh, it is true. I mean, uh, it is difficult and uh, uh, you need time. You mm. need a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was in British Columbia for uh, 14 months mm. and uh, it took me like six months to enter wow. uh, the community in a proper way. Yeah. Um, it was not that difficult uh, in the beginning, or at least I thought it was uh, easy because you know I so I moved to Fort St. John in July 2019, and I was able to attend the different cultural camps. And, you know, it was summer, and uh, during summertime you have a lot of cultural events going yeah. on. So you know, uh, cultural camps, rodeo, and uh, all these kind of things, and it's kind of easy to uh to get to know people right mm -hmm. and um and so that was my uh, the way in which i started to to know people but then you need at least three or four months of you know uh work that you have to do with uh with people in so what i mean is that you need to uh, to be patient and to wait for an answer and uh, you know you need to um, to ask an applied for it if you can be useful and if you mm. can do something uh, for the community. Mm. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I think you were mentioning something important. You know, there is mistrust and there is also a bit of um, there's a bit of a challenge when you want to work with, uh, with the nation because, you know, in the past it has been like uh, a, a real issue and, you know, th there has been a lot of extraction from yeah. uh, from the banks uh, by researchers just to, you know, to do some cool research and uh, and then basically um, without giving back, right, to the community. Yes. Um, I think uh, what we need to do as researchers when we engage with indigenous people, first of all, I think we are responsible for the way in which we engage and we have to be honest and uh, uh, we need to put a lot of effort in order to uh, to build the relationship but also to uh, to keep the relationship alive right and uh, and sometimes you know it can be challenging because also we we might uh, think that uh, oh you know i'm not getting an answer so you know uh, this person doesn't really care but we also need to realize that uh for example a band manager you know this person can receive like 150 emails per day mm. and uh, most of the times they are so busy with companies especially you know in British Columbia and Alberta and so you know sometimes it, it, it's difficult for them to you know even to to, to follow what's going on with uh, um uh, with other uh, people working uh, within the band, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, and also, you know what? I think we also need to uh, to accept the fact that sometimes, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are communities that may not be interested in having right. uh, external people, right? right. And uh, and it's alright. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know um, we need to to be happy about the fact that you know we we have been refused. But uh, you know it's just like we need to accept that it's not always possible mm -hmm. to uh, to carry out what we want to 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 do. And also, I think we need to be flexible. 
So, I mean, like when I started my fieldwork, I had an idea. And then uh, at some point I was like, well, you know, I, I can adapt my research to the needs of the community. And it's important that, you know, as a researcher, um, I, I could adapt my, uh, my research ideas and what I wanted to get uh, from my fieldwork to the needs of the community. Uh, I think that's, that's important. Mm, right. Appreciate that. Now, a couple of things that you also talk about in your article here, and it goes, I guess, in terms in terms of how you look at this from an interpretive uh, approach. Uh, is it a disaster because, uh, you know, they were refused? Um, or is does this really bridge the way forward uh, to have more of that nation-to-nation dialogue between uh, governments, business, and, and First Nations? Uh, it, it doesn't have to be looked at like a disaster it's probably the way things should have been going all along anyway. Yes, I agree. And uh, you know what? I think it's a matter of perspectives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In a way that uh, <laughs> I like to think that if you have lemons, uh, you better make lemonade instead of <laughs> making a, a soda, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think in a way... Um, the government, like the Canadian government, and in this case, the British Columbia government, probably after this case, will be able to to understand which kind of path uh, um, is necessary to um, to follow in order to uh, to address some important issues uh, when it comes to uh, extractivism, when it, when when it comes to uh, the exploitation of natural resources, right? Mm. Um. <laughs> I think uh, it is a huge opportunity, to be honest, to um, not only for the government but also for uh, for the bands mm. uh, to get to the point where they can really be independent from an economic point of view sure. and from a political point of view, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it means that you know they also need to be accountable. Uh, they also need to. Um, to be able to make decisions. And sometimes, you know, um, a nation can make um, some mistakes. And uh, and so, you know, it is a matter of accountability of the band, uh, the council, and the chief. And I think, you know, uh, First Nations want to be treated as governments with uh, all the things that a government uh, needs to address. Well, there are so many things in there that you just said that we could uh, take one of and just follow that, uh, you know, in terms of just, uh, as you say, want to be treated a certain way when First Nation people have not been treated equally uh, ever. And so when you have been denied things over generations, uh, how could you expect to be thinking the same way? And uh, when you get into a relationship, of course, there's going to be mistakes because there hasn't mm-hmm. been that opportunity for for the bands and the communities to participate in the same way that uh, the rest of Canada and government and businesses have been doing for, for generations, right? For, for decades. So uh, that continues. Now, you also mentioned this thing about land code and about uh, the developing of, of community land code, which allows uh, First Nations to get out from under the Indian Act, and you said the Doing First First Nation is in is in that process. Yes, yes. Um, so they actually started uh, last year, so it's um, it's new and uh, it's going to take some time. Yeah. But uh, uh, the Doing River First Nation 
um, as a band, they want to follow this path uh, because one of the um, main goals of the of the nation is to be independent from yep. an economic point of view yep. and to take care of their um, members. And so, probably the land code is one of the best ways to achieve uh, this sort of you know economic independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I truly believe that it can also be. Um, a new way to uh, to address other issues, right? Uh, when it comes to self-government, and uh, um, I know that the band manager of Doi River First Nation, which is a brilliant person, and uh, I'm still in touch with her. She is also trying to address some issues related to um, uh, finance, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, when it comes to taxation, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably with the land code, they will be able to um, to address some of these issues as well. Mm-hmm. Now, doing things right is something you also talk about in your article, uh, and you talk about uh, the the uh, Yehi versus uh, Columbia, British Columbia uh, uh, ruling here. And 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 in fact, um, I believe the chief actually said. It's not that we're against uh, development, but we. But if it's if it's done the right way, if it's doing it the right way, it, it sounds like this idea of what is right is very much, in some ways, from what you were saying at the end of your article, there a very sort of a an indigenous approach. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to change our mindset, and we need to change the way in which we we conceive development. Right, and uh, I think. It is important to understand what we really need to uh, to have a good life and to live a good life, right? Right. And um, and I think uh, you know after all, this is all about, and this is something that indigenous people are still trying to uh, to transmit to future generation, and probably mm-hmm. we we should be able to we should and uh, we could learn from from the way in which uh, indigenous people have been living. And, you know, I'm not saying that sometimes it has been also difficult to uh, to communicate to people in this way because, you know, and, and, and this specific message, because sometimes it's like, well, you know, so are you, are you saying that you are, uh, you know, uh, against any kind of uh, modernity or development? No, and, you know, indigenous people, they do want uh, uh, development, and when I say indigenous people, I say indigenous people from uh, northern British Colombia, based on my experience, right? But I think what we really need to learn is that we cannot keep going in the same way uh, as we did uh, until now, because otherwise, you know, at some point we are not going to be able to live on this world. We need to find a way to 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 accept the fact that enough is enough and uh, we need to reach a balance. We need to reach a balance uh, as regards our needs, our, our material needs, right? Because sometimes, and this is true for us, this is true for indigenous people, this is true for everything and for everyone. Um, yeah, so I think that's the, uh, that's the real challenge here now. Mm. All right, Giuseppe, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to join us on the show. Uh, from Italy, you're all, <laughs> I understand. Yes, I'm still, I'm still having some uh, holidays in Italy. I will be back uh, to the UK in a couple of weeks. Thank you, David, for inviting me. It has been such a great pleasure for me to be 
Uh, to be here today. You bet. Yeah, and it's still a little bit uh, just humorous for me to be talking to you about First Nation Indigenous issues in Canada for uh, with someone from Italy. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know. <laughs> but you see, that shows you how much of a small world this is, right? It is, especially right now. All right, Giuseppe, thank you once again and take care and all the best. Thank you, David. Thank all you right. very much. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Giuseppe Amatulli, and he is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Durham University. We've been talking to him about his article, What a Landmark Court Victory for a BC First Nation Means for Indigenous Rights and Resource Development. That was authored in The Conversation. And that is this part of our show. Please don't go away. We will be right back with more right after these messages. Stay tuned. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Shauna McKinnon. She's an associate professor and chair in the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. And she is here to talk to us about an article she co-authored in the conversation. It is called Want to Decolonize Education? Where Classes Are Held Matters. She co-authored this with Kathy Mallett, an Indigenous activist and community research partner. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Shauna McKinnon to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I thank you so much for being here on the show to talk about your article. And as I say, you co-authored that with Kathy Mallett. Unfortunately, Kathy couldn't join us. Now, just a little bit about yourself. As I mentioned, you're an associate professor and chair at the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies with, with uh, the University of Winnipeg. But you've also conducted research on social and economic issues for over 20 years with a focus on public policy, poverty and inequity. And you are most interested in research that focuses on issues that identified uh, individuals individuals living in poverty and those working closely with them. And uh, also Dr. McKinnon just subscribes to social justice, community-based participatory research approach to research and actively engaging uh, with community partners beyond research to mobilize knowledge and use research as a tool to advocate for progressive change. Your article, um, as I was reading it over, I was wondering, I was wondering what kind of feedback you've gotten from this so far actually well we've got some really positive feedback and just you know there just seems to be an interest in this approach and you know the reason why Kathy and I decided to write this piece um so yeah it's too bad Kathy couldn't join but uh that is sort of the the challenge um right now everybody's so busy with so Mm. many things uh because you know we feel we have a we've developed an interesting approach here um that people you know might find useful as as they move forward and grapple with you know how do we do things differently how do we um you know genuinely address um uh responding to the truth and reconciliation calls to action and and you know so it's something that we've been grappling with the long time for a long time Mm. you know and again doing so um with people who are non-indigenous as well and in collaboration with people Mm. who are indigenous uh in the city of winnipeg here where we have a very large indigenous population absolutely Uh, yeah we've been getting some you know interesting uh interesting feedback right now the premise of your article revolves around the hub of this merchant hotel that has been repurposed um, for education with the University of Winnipeg in the north end of Winnipeg. And it's interesting because I'm wondering if, 
if the article and with the idea of of how remote uh, learning and online learning would have, if if this would have been uh, pronounced as it has been, had it not been for COVID nineteen. Yeah. So I mean, for us, you know, everybody's you know experienced challenges with with the pandemic and, mm. and making a shift to online learning. Uh, but it's but particularly problematic for us as we, you know, endeavor to do things differently in this space that is largely Indigenous, bringing Indigenous students together with non-Indigenous students in, in also a city that, you know, has a reputation for, for being um, quite racist, mm. uh, definitely geographically divided. Mm. Um, and so being in the space has been so important. And so, you know, we, we've really struggled uh, not being able to be here. Like I'm, I'm speaking to you now where I'm back in the space, I'm teaching my classes here, mm. you know, and so it's really great to be back. But so we decided to do this project, you know, to ask our students how they were experiencing it, experiencing online learning. And, you know, we just know that, um, and we're hearing from the students as we indicate, you know, in the, in the article, and we're, we're, we're still reaching out to get more from our students but it's just not the same, right? Because we have these honest, difficult conversations in the classroom. We have small classes. They're extremely diverse. Um, um, and, um, you know, you ju- it's, it's, just, it's just something that you cannot do online. Right. Now, when you say extremely diverse, are you talking about the mix of students that are in, in the classes? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we have, I would say, I mean, and, and, and diverse in many ways. So, mm. we have, you know... Um, probably about 40% of our students are Indigenous students. Mm-hmm. Um, a large number of those, and, it, and as well as not some non-Indigenous students are from the inner city here in the North End, which is, you know, among the poorest neighbourhoods in the country. Mm. Uh, so we have some students who are, you know, have lived their entire lives, some often for generations in poverty. And then we have students that come to take courses here who are from the South Side. So you're typically middle-class um, white students who uh, decide they want to learn in the neighborhood about mm-hmm. the issues that they're studying. And so they venture here to the, to the North end. So we have, you know, you know, and then of course we also have a, a large number of newcomers who mm-hmm. live both in the neighborhood and outside of the neighborhood. So, you know, it's diverse in many ways, both um, the, and also the way that we teach, we have, um, so, you know, Kathy and I writing this article together, you know, we're also in the process, we've developed a course together, we're in the process of putting this uh, edited book together, which mm. is co-written by academics and non-academic Indigenous folks who've been activists in the inner city. So, you know, we try as much as possible to sort of to genuinely be diverse in, in, in all ways. Yes. Now you mentioned that book, uh, which is going to be, I understand, going to be used as uh, as a class textbook. That's right. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's a super exciting project that builds from um, a project that Kathy was involved in, and I was not directly involved in back in 2013, where Kathy and um, Dr. John Loxley, who was previously the principal investigator of the the Manitoba Research Alliance that I'm now the principal investigator of, uh, they uh, decided that, you know, there was a real need to capture the oral histories of all the Indigenous folks who were actively involved in developing some really important Indigenous organizations here in our city, and as well as actively involved in, in resistance um, throughout those years. So they, uh, they uh, did uh, some 30-some interviews with, with, uh, 
with Indigenous folks active in that time. And so we've now gone through this next stage. Uh, Dr. John Loxley passed away uh, a little over a year ago. So Kathy and I have taken up the you know, the work, and we're now developing this book where we're basically taking all of those audio uh, oral histories Mm. and and developing a book that we can use to educate younger folks here in Winnipeg who do not know about all the work that that went on because, you know, those stories haven't been told. And so Mm. now they're being told and we're just putting them together in a textbook and we're going to offer a course here in the neighborhood where all the activism has taken place. Mm. It's interesting uh, about how the physical space uh, of of where you're located in uh, the Merchant's Corner and in the north part of, of Winnipeg, also part of the University of Winnipeg, because it's separate, much like other universities have different campuses, is more conducive to Indigenous students because it provides smaller classes. Now, in my community of Six Nations, uh, students go from grades one to eight in the community, but they have to go to high school off the community. So there's a bit of a transition there because they've been going within their own community for so long, and then they have to learn to exit the community. And there's there's a lot of trepidation and there's a lot of concern. And so I know a number of videos have been made around, around trying to help them transition. As you've mentioned, David, the transition issue is a big issue for mm. people coming, you know, from remote First mm-hmm. Nations as well as it is for those transitioning in urban centers from, mm. you know, communities where uh, and leaving their communities to go to other parts of the city. And even though University of Winnipeg here is downtown, it's still on the south side. There's like a real uh, significant bar- uh, barrier here in our city, mm. which is the tracks, right? right? So it's south of the tracks. It's this idea of going south of the tracks where um, people feel that they just don't feel as comfortable. So so that's a huge transition. Um, um, so, you know, our idea when we developed this was that, okay, let's, let's uh, part of that transition is to get people to feel comfortable about being in a post-secondary education mm. where, you know, you can feel invisible. Um, and if you're um, uh, like some of our students also, if you're like a small number of indigenous students in this big space, uh, you, you, you know, you often it's intimidating, right. Mm. You know, not only for indigenous students, but it, we've found that definitely to be the case for indigenous students who've experienced high levels of racism in our city. Mm. So our, our idea is to, to, to start to, to uh, develop trust, develop relationships. Um, they get to know the, the professors here. Um, they get to, you know, develop uh, relationships with a cohort of students. And then they, they eventually take courses at the main campus. It's mm-hmm. not that we, right. you know, don't want to, sure. but it's just a way to slowly transition so that it isn't completely overwhelming. Um, and they just, you know, often end up just leaving because they yeah. just, uh, it's just too, too difficult for them. I'm wondering if, if the 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 uh, some of the other things that that are involved in this um, may be the fact that many of these indigenous students are coming from families where no one has attended a post secondary institution before, so it's all brand new to them. No one is there to help them or guide them or give them that, some some kind of feedback in terms of what to expect when you go to you know university, uh, how to prepare yourself, all of those kind of things. And when they're the first, if they if they, if they're the first 
first person in their family that could be going to a post-secondary institution, uh, that could be very scary in itself. Add to that, of course, the intergenerational trauma. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's many, many um, uh, barriers uh, and and uh, many factors that contribute to that you know, people feeling lost and, you know, not really feeling a sense of belonging, but, you know, for sure. So you've got students who are very often the first in their family. Some, many of our students are students who've left school, mm. um, you know, as, as teenagers and they've mm. come back later as adults. Yep. Many of our students are single parents, yep. um, but yes, often, very often the first in their family to, to, to make the, uh, you know, the attempt at, at, at university. And so, you know, where really our aim is to, you know, sort of de- demystify it a bit, but also to provide, you know, develop relationships. We're small, you know, so we can do that. We're very, you know, we're here always, you know, and we're, our doors are open. And then we're also still here when they move on and take courses at the main campus because they mm. can't complete their full degree here. They do have to take other courses. Sure. Uh, and so, but we're sort of, we become a home base for them so that they always know, you know, that they can come here for support. Um, there are additional supports as well at the main campus, but really it is this this really small, safe space that really makes a big difference for our students. Mm. Uh, I want to I get into talking a little bit more about the, the space itself, because I understand that uh, there was involvement from the Indigenous community from the very start when the, when the, the building started to be repurposed, and even, even the idea of choosing that space, um, yeah. I understand. But before we get into that, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. 97, uh, 97.5 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Dr. Shauna McKinnon. She's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. And we're talking to her about an article she co-authored in the conversation, which is entitled, Want to Decolonize Education? Where Classes Are Held Matters. And she co-authored this with Kathy Mallett. And fortunately, Kathy was not able to join us Uh, for this conversation, but she's uh, with us in spirit. So it's a pleasure to have Dr. Shauna McKinnon here with us to talk about this. Dr. McKinnon, the the physical space itself um, of uh, where this building is, uh, as as you pointed out, it's in the north end of... um, of Winnipeg, and it's the the old Merchant Hotel. Now it's called known as Merchant's Corner. What can you tell us about it itself in terms of of why why is this why was this space important? Yeah, so that's part of part of the importance of the story for sure. So, uh, so the space that I'm in right now here, where I'm, well, as I talked to you at Merchant's mm. Corner, it, it used to be. A, um, a hotel called the Merchants Hotel, and it was, you know, a problematic space in the neighborhood. Um, and for many, many years, so along the, the strip here that is Selkirk Avenue, there are a number of initiatives that have developed over the years that have been education focused. Um, and uh, the one most recently that I think really inspired moving forward with redeveloping Merchants Corner, which has, you know, been in people's mind for many years. Was just down the street. We have an intergenerational uh, uh, a center that provides uh, child care for mm-hmm. Indigenous kids in the mm-hmm. neighborhood, mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a uh, like a, a quite a bit of involvement of, of Indigenous elders in that project. And so, 
you know, it's like about four doors down. And so mm-hmm. when they, they've got an outdoor space for the kids to play in. And here you had this merchant's hotel, which, you know, was a problematic space. There was a lot of, you know, drug dealing going on here. And, you know, there was, it was a really kind of um, a place where there would be, you know, some, you know, sort of the impetus for some violence in the neighborhood. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so the elders, you know, really wanted to change this space, to take take over this space, to reclaim this mm. this space. And so, and they wanted it to be focused on education. So that was sort of the beginning. It mm. was really the idea of elders. And then the community came together through the North End Community Renewal Corporation and really started to do the work to, uh, to, to envision what it would be and then uh, make that happen. So the the building itself is owned by uh, Merchants Corner Inc., which so it's commun- owned by the community mm. here in the North End. Um, it's got housing attached to it, which mm. uh, provides um, rent geared to income social housing for for people uh, in the neighborhood. But uh, students uh, are a priority. Uh, and then again, there's like a childcare space just a few doors down so students can take their their children there while they learn and so it's just really you know another phase of development on the in the neighborhood that is very much reclaiming the space and focusing on education in a way that is comfortable for people in the neighborhood that sounds wonderful with all those uh you know facilities available right close by i i can imagine if uh if i were a single parent uh you know and had a young child to know that uh, i had this child at you know, very close to me, uh, I'd feel much more uh, relaxed about attending class because I know that if something comes up, I can be there really quickly uh, to to uh, deal with whatever the child's needs are. Uh, that that must be a great uh, a, a great benefit for some of those students that do have kids that are attending classes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and if you were here right now, I would take you into a classroom, which is which um is my favorite classroom, where if you look out the window. Um, you can see the uh, the outdoor space where the kids are playing uh, at the childcare center mm. at Makusang Childcare Center, and so you know you could have you know mom sitting in the classroom uh, <laughs> taking a class, and you know they can look out the window and see their children playing. So it, it is a pretty it's a it's a pretty um, important model in many respects. I think right. I guess the other thing along with that is the fact that. Um, Aside, you know, unlike uh, a, a, a student without those responsibilities, uh, well, that says it right there. Uh, a parent, a, a young student that has a, a child to take care of has a huge amount of responsibility already to look after. So that on top of taking classes, uh, that's that's uh, that's really something to be able to manage all that and and handle it all. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I think, what we really started to see this real divide when we were were teaching online. And so, just even for myself, I you know used to teaching in this environment, and then suddenly teaching online, I could see you can see it in front of you, right? You've got students there who, first of all, um, you know you know, won't have uh, the same level of access right mm-hmm. to the internet. And yeah. so, you know, they can't, they can't participate the same sure. way on a zoom meeting than other students right. can, or, you know, they're stuck at home and with their kids there mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And so they're trying to, you know, concentrate while they're also caring for their children. And so, you know, really you could just see like, we're trying to play, put, create this space here, you know, that, that, you know, in the spirit of, of, 
of of equity and you could mm. see the equity kind of falling apart mm. when people are you know learning online and there were some students for whom it worked just fine you know because sure. they're at home in their their comfortable surroundings yep. you know with yep. no disruption mm-hmm. and other students just didn't have that top opportunity Right. Now, of course, we've been into the pandemic for a couple of years now, I guess. And I'm just wondering, you did hear back or you just you just gave some some examples of what you uh, were, were getting from from students that uh, and you talked about the differences uh, of what even people might have in terms of access to the Internet. Some people may not have had uh, a strong connection, et cetera, or had that ability to connect the way they want to. Um, what are what are you hearing back at this point from some of the experiences that students, uh, you know, um, did experience through this time? Yeah, so we're, it's definitely quite clear that the students who struggled the most uh, were students who, you know, were coming from, you know, lower socioeconomic situations, you know, people with children at home, those sorts of things. The students who seemed to manage better were, you know, you know, more, the more privileged students. But the other thing that we're hearing um, from both of those students is that uh, what really they miss the most of being here was the, the ability to develop relationships with students Mm. who they might not have otherwise had a conversation with Mm -hmm. um, and being able to share in the classroom because the same sharing does not happen online. And I can say that just from my experience, Um, students here, because we're small, we have we never have more than 25 students in a class when, you know, we're talking about difficult things, you will have somebody feeling safe, they can see the students around them in the classroom, and they they can decide, you know, whether or not they feel safe to share, and they do. And there's like a, there's a kind of learning that happens there that just doesn't happen online, and somebody is less likely uh, to openly share, I find, um, on a Zoom call. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because they're not in the space where they can look somebody in the eye, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you mentioned relationships, the other thing I thought about, and it, it goes hand in hand with exactly why you, uh, why somewhat why you wrote the article, and also why you talk about the space as it is, and that is reconciliation. Um, you know that whole idea of bringing people together, uh, both the indigenous and non-indigenous. And um, and having some of those, uh, uh, you know, those middle middle class kids coming to those classes. I'm wondering now, I know it's it's only been open for a little while, maybe a year. It's been about a year since it's been open. Uh, like the building itself, 2020. No, no, what? we've been here for a few years. I think we've been here for oh, four years now. Oh, because I, yeah. I thought I saw the building was starting to uh, uh, be worked on in 2018 and then it, it had a grand opening in 2020, I thought. I saw. Yeah, but we opened up a bit. Uh, well, the grand opening was before. Yeah, grand opening was after we had actually moved in. Yeah, for sure. Because there, there was still work being done here <laughs> while we were in the space. Okay, right. So, so then now, that's great that you've been there that long. So what kind of things have you heard back or have you seen in terms of the relationship building that you were just talking about and uh, that uh, that kind of reconciliation that you talk about uh, that is needed uh, as we move forward are you finding that that you are hearing from some of these uh, students that wouldn't necessarily have been exposed or or uh, know about the indigenous uh, history uh, as much as they might have now from being exposed to this in this environment. Are, are you finding that it is having benefits? Are you hearing back from students about this? 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples, I mean, of that, how that all plays out. And so one of the critical pieces, and this isn't even something we thought about when we mm-hmm. were designing this program, it was kind of serendipitous, and it's mm-hmm. been super important. But what happens is, because this is largely an Indigenous space, the students that come here that are not, you know, have not been in the North End, they're mm-hmm. not Indigenous themselves, mm-hmm. you know, sort of your more middle class privileged mm-hmm. folks from the South Side, yep. I would say, when they come here, like they're they sometimes they are you can you know when they first come they're a little bit nervous right because <laughs> sure. they've heard all these terrible things about course, the north end yeah. and Selkirk avenue mm. so they come and there's like a little bit of trepidation at the beginning and then they slowly get comfortable and and one of the you know and so one of the things we do is initially we really try to get people you know start to talk to each other and learn mm. where they're from and accept that people are coming from different places so you know one example i had uh one year a young man in my class who was um a young indigenous guy who you know had been involved you know in the criminal justice system and he mm. was going back to school he was in my class next to him was sitting a young guy who was wanting to be, you know, a young white man from the South side who was wanting to be a police officer, mm. uh, taking criminal justice. And he thought, Oh, I'm going to take this as a, an elective and go right. to the North end sitting beside him. And so it was just kind of interesting because they were both coming from completely different perspectives, but they spent, you know, the term sitting beside each other, getting to know each other a little bit. Mm. And you know, I don't know what, you know, who knows what happened, but I, I'd like to believe that that young fella went back to the South side and maybe had a little bit of a different perspective on things that he came with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, just, you know, that just does not happen right in, in sort of your typical education setting, because you know, they probably wouldn't have even known that about each other. Right. If in fact, that one young man would have actually even gone to university in yeah. that setting, right. but they would never have probably had an opportunity to, to, you know, to, to chat with each other and kind of get to know each other and in this kind of a safe space that we try to create. And then students tell us that, you know, they, they, you know, they, they open up after a while and they, you know, they say, yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, with this belief in this North that when the North end is being this terrible place and being afraid, you know, of indigenous people and never having a meaningful conversation with an indigenous person. And this has completely transformed the way I see, you know, our city and the experiences of people. And so that's like the first steps of reconciliation, right? Mm. For them to come here and hear those truths Mm. that are shared uh, and then to maybe go back to where they live and maybe to challenge some of the racist um, ideas that they are, they continue to be exposed to. Right. As we finish off our time at the bottom of your article, you say post-secondary institutions have a responsibility to create safe decolonizing spaces for this kind of work to take place. And uh, do you do you think that that is happening in, in other university settings as well? Well, you know, I don't know if any, I mean, you know, our community is, you know, we've developed something that fits with our community, so I can't speak to what others mm. are doing, but, but I can say that there's still this tendency to try to um, to bring you know to bring people into a space that is you know this still a Western designed you know a colonial institution and mm. and and you know maybe welcome people in but not doing what what we're trying to do is the opposite no let's get out let's get out of the the colonial institution into the community. And let's be open to different ways of teaching, bringing different knowledges into the classroom, 
Um, I don't know how much that's happening. And I think one of the benefits we have is because we are out here in the North End. Mm. I would say sometimes we kind of fly under the radar a little bit Mm. uh, and are able to do some things maybe that wouldn't be as easy for us to do in the uh, on the the main campus. Right, right. All right, uh, Dr. Shannon McKinnon, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you about this, and we thank you for writing the article. Uh, As I mentioned, it is called Want to Decolonize Education? Where Classes Are Held Matters, and you can find that in the conversation online at theconversation.ca, and uh, read the article for yourself. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Dr. McKinnon and uh, her uh, co-author, Kathy Mellett, would be uh, more than happy to hear back from you if you have uh, comments on it and, uh, and how perhaps you've seen this in your community or area or post-secondary institution. Shauna, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about this. Yeah, thanks so much, David. It's been a pleasure. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Shauna McKinnon. She's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies. And it is a pleasure talking to her about her article, Want to Decolonize Education, Where Classes Are Held Matters. That's our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.